Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Today I'll be speaking with Todd W. Rice, MD, MSc, about his article published in Critical Care Medicine entitled Feeding the Critically Ill Patient. Rice works as an assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. His article, which was co-authored by Stephen McClave, Robert Martindale, and Darren Hyland, is a beautiful review article discussing the most up-to-date nuances and controversies regarding nutritional support of our critically ill patients. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Rice. I thought we could maybe start if you could Give us a little bit of your background, what got you interested in nutrition, and maybe perhaps how this particular manuscript came together with you and your colleagues. Sure. So, you know, I was a pulmonary critical care fellow here at Vanderbilt kind of in the early to mid-2000s and was looking at doing some clinical research in critically ill patients. And although a lot of kind of areas interested me, one area that kind of interested me the most at that time was critical care nutrition, largely because, you know, that was a decade ago and largely because at that time, practice of critical care nutrition was built on a lot of dogma and some data that were not the most robust data with retrospective or small observational studies. But in general, the practice wasn't built on a ton of evidence. And it just intrigued me that it was something that occurred in you know, a vast majority of critically ill patients, and we just hadn't looked at it very much in depth. And so I actually had a NHLBI grant investigating trophic versus full feeding in critically ill patients that were on the mechanical ventilator as part of my uh, fellowship and then early faculty years. And that kind of launched me into more in-depth interest in critical care nutrition and kind of a career that at least in part is based on some critical care nutrition. Subsequently, did a couple studies with the ARDS network on critical care nutrition topics in patients with ARDS, specifically, again, trophic versus full feeds and some omega-3 fatty acid supplementation, which kind of made me more well-known in the critical care nutrition world and got me collegial relationships with, you know, many of my co-authors on this manuscript. And for people who know critical care nutrition, the co-authors on this manuscript are names that they know that are well-published that have been doing critical care nutrition for years. The opportunity came about six months ago when John Severansky, the associate editor of Critical Care Medicine, actually emailed me and asked me if I would be interested in writing sort of a state-of-the-art or a recent update on critical care nutrition, and I could reach out to some colleagues and authors on this paper, and I had been working together and doing some things and had been looking for kind of an opportunity to summarize kind of some of the recent advances. And so we said yes and used this opportunity to kind of write this review article. Kind of the who's who in critical nutrition. I must say, maybe we can actually talk about some of the involved in critical care nutrition, because as you read through the literature and as you go you know, through over time, you get... I get more and more confused about what's right to do in, in, in terms of feeding the critically ill. And this optimal dose of nutrition is, is really interesting in uh, you know, the trophic versus full feeding, uh, especially in, in, in folks with acute lung injury. Really, is, is very, it's some very interesting data. I thought maybe you, maybe you could share some of your experience and, and your thoughts about what is the optimal dose and how do we determine that? Yeah, good question. I think your comments about uh, as we get more and more data, many times it's more and more confusing about what we should do is uh, is very apt. This article summarizes some of them, although there have been a couple even large trials after this article. But in the last probably five years, there have been a number of fairly large trials investigating different aspects of critical care nutrition that 
you know, the thought when they were designed and being conducted was that they would help clarify the picture. And, and then as we get the results, they've clarified some aspects of the picture, but have also kind of made other aspects questioned or confusing. The the optimal dose is one of those areas that, you know, I still think we don't actually have all of the data that tells us what the optimal dose is. And, you know, we did two studies looking the trophic versus full feeds and couldn't find in either of the studies that either trophic or full feeding resulted in a, in a better outcome. Both our groups had similar outcomes. And many people in the nutrition world can find populations that either weren't included in those articles, such as malnourished patients, or in general, surgical patients weren't largely represented in those, those studies, and still say, well, you know, maybe full nutrition in those patients has some benefit. But the way those studies were set up tested, you know, two aspects, that being trophic or full, and obviously there's a huge gray area between those that may be, you know, the right amount of nutrition. I think it's also complicated considerably by the fact that nutrition is available as enteral nutrition and parenteral nutrition. And, you know, in general, people have had a more negative view of parenteral nutrition but again, emerging data suggests that although maybe supplementing enteral nutrition with parenteral nutrition may not be the best, there's a recent article that published a few months ago that ended up with similar outcomes also. And so, you know, I think both optimal dose can be looked at as optimal enteral, optimal parenteral, and or combination of the two. And I think although we're making some headway with data, I think we still don't have the right answer. Currently in my practice, I start patients on nutrition as what I call early, although if you look at the practice, it always tends to be a little later than we think we're doing it. But usually within the first 48, I try and do the first 24 hours, but usually the first 48 is a pretty safe bet. Personally, I started trophic in almost all of my patients, but I tell the nurses, you know, as your workload kind of allows, you can advance to goal. I don't think it's important enough that you should spend all of your time you know, not doing other things, trying to check residuals and prevent the patient from vomiting and stopping and restarting and doing all that sort of stuff. But if you can, if you can advance it, you know, advance it. So that's how I deal with optimal nutrition. Just in that last sentence, I, I heard a bunch of potential controversies. Maybe we can start with what does trophic nutrition mean or what is, is that 5 cc's an hour, 10 cc's an hour, 20 cc's an hour? How should we define that? Yeah, good question. So, you know, the defining part of it is pretty easy in that it's the amount of nutrition that is sort of stimulant to the gut. We know that by feeding the gut, it maintains intestinal microvilli, it promotes stimulation, secretion of secretory enzymes and IgA and increases some blood flow to the gut and prevents bacterial translocation and has some positive immune properties. So, you know, that's the concept of trophic, which is giving the gut something so that it has those beneficial effects. The harder part is actually putting a number on it. And, you know, depending on the species, there's some animal studies, and depending on the species, that number can vary from 10% of goal needs to 25% of goal needs, depending on dogs and pigs and those sorts of things. And I don't, I don't know that we know what that amount is in, in humans. We chose in one of our trophic studies 10 cc's an hour just as a, a straight dose. And the other one, we actually did 20 kilocalories an hour, which turned out to be you know, almost 20 cc's with many formulas. And it gave us two different doses without a difference in the answer. So I think that, you know, trophic is someplace in the range of 10 to 20. Is five enough, five cc's an hour enough? I don't know. 10, I think, is probably enough. And, you know, 20 is probably safely enough to be trophic feeds. In general, in my ICU, the nurses that do trophic feeds 
when they do them, tend to like them better than full because they don't have as much residuals if they're checking them. They don't have as much vomiting. They don't have as much GI stuff. It's just easier for them to do. But, you know, they still are doing stoppages for bathing and for those sorts of types of things. So, that you know, it's still not without obstacles and hindrances. The other thing is I think about starting early enteral nutrition is when is it safe? So when, you know, if you have a patient in septic shock, on pressors, um, patient in cardiogenic shock, whatever patient you're taking care of, but that, that is quite sick and, and is malperfused. There seems to be a lot of controversy over when, when is it safe to start enteral nutrition? Another great question and the fact that I think we don't really know the data. We have always heard, and I think the kind of mantra that you hear from people is, well, when the patient's hemodynamically stable, and then nobody ever defines what hemodynamic stability means. And so they kind of leave it as that open, No, oh, yeah, are they hemodynamically stable? Then do it. I, you know, I think in general we, and in both of our studies, we fed patients on pressors, and we essentially said if you weren't on severe doses of pressors, which we put a definition of 30 mics uh, per per minute of norepi and an equivalent dose in that, that we wouldn't feed you, but otherwise we'd feed you and let kind of our monitoring take care of the whether or not you could safely be fed. What makes it, I think, a little bit more difficult is that we at least have data in animals that feeding the intestine stimulates blood flow and may be good for it in assuming, of course, that you can stimulate blood flow. So if you're on high-dose pressors and can't increase the blood flow, it's probably not good to make the intestine work. But if you can stimulate blood flow to the intestine, it may actually be nourishing. It's part of the trophic effects of feeding. As far as I know, I don't know that anybody has ever defined as to, you know, what that cutoff is. And it's kind of all clinical gestalt, for sure. And then, you know, you're speaking a lot about the nurses and their management at the bedside. And I like the, uh, there's a portion of the uh, manuscript that dealt with kind of the nutrition bundles. And I, I was wondering how that at least works perhaps at your institution. And do you have nurses checking residuals? Do you look for other signs of feeding intolerance? And, and how does it actually work as a, as a bundle where it's, it, it sounds like it's maybe perhaps it's more nurse-driven in, in your ICU? Yeah, we, we definitely talk about bundles, and we think that's kind of a good way of thinking it. As many of you all know, Bundles have become sort of a, a critical care word, and we talk about sepsis bundles and resuscitation bundles and ventilator pneumonia prevention bundles. And so, you know, bundles are obviously kind of common in the in the ICU, and our nurses are used to it. And I think you're right. I think the nutrition bundles are largely driven by non-physicians, meaning our dietitians and our nurses kind of are driving these bundles. You know, we have tried to eliminate checking of gastric residual volumes because some of the newer data suggests that they may not be beneficial to at least the average general critically ill patient. It's hard because nurses get taught in nursing school that gastric residual volumes are a safety thing and they have to check them and, you know, the cutoffs. We get nurses from many different nursing schools and the cutoffs vary from the nursing school, but it's always interesting to talk to them and, you know, they hammered home how important residual volumes are. So in our bundle here, we've tried to try and eliminate those because they, in general, haven't been shown to be beneficial for patient outcomes, and they do require a fair amount of work. And then the rest of the bundles are kind of the procedure of, you know, providing enteral nutrition. Start it, get your um, head of the bed up, you know, may or may not use probiotics, do what we call GI intolerance checks. So we're checking for distension and we're checking for diarrhea and regurgitation and those sorts of things. And then depending on the patient, there are some additional system-specific things that you can do with the bundles for whether or not you can advance to goals or whether or not they need a tube that's either in the stomach or distal or whether or not they need a prokinetic and that sort of thing. Those are a little bit more physician 
directed, although at least in our environment, our nurses are facile enough with them that they often will say, you know, this patient has thrown up three times. Can we change their tube to a post-polaric position or, you know, start a prokinetic, et cetera? Yeah. I was curious to see that in the, the potential elements. I don't know if this is your, your actual model, but consider initiating prokinetics it sounds like earlier, when you're upon initiation of your enteral nutrition, is it? Yeah. And so, you know, there are a lot of, and, and part of this was, you know, compromise of the, of the authors, obviously. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of areas and a lot of hospitals and people that think start your prokinetic before you ever have problems and, you know, decrease the chance of having problems. I will admit that that is not what occurs in my hospital. We use prokinetics in a reactionary way and not as a prophylactic way. But I think, you know, it's, I think there are a large contingent of hospitals and nutrition people out there that are doing prokinetics kind of on the front end, you know, not necessarily as prophylaxis, but, you know, to try and decrease the incidence of intolerances. And another part of that was the, the probiotics, which I have found tremendously confusing in the literature to determine who should get probiotics, if, if anyone. Do you use probiotics or, or was it one of the other authors that Perhaps. Yeah, so we don't use them in our medical intensive care unit. Now, they are used routinely in our neuro intensive care unit here. One of the other authors uses them almost routinely and, you know, has a, a fairly strong belief that they are beneficial. But, you know, as as you can tell a little bit from the tone of this manuscript, the authors all are reasonable people in recognizing that the data that are out there have their limitations and, you know, they aren't necessarily the end-all, be-all answers. And even this author who likes them readily admits that the data on them are almost impossible to interpret because of heterogeneity and dose of the probiotic and what actual bacteria is used and what population it's used in. And I think, you know, as, as you can tell from the manuscript, we put it in sort of a future direction because I think there's interest in probiotics. I think there are a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of things that we need to figure out before we have any confidence that we know what we're doing with their administration. You in general don't use them? We don't, and uh, especially with some of the concerns in critically ill patients about fungemia. Sure. Yeah, I just uh, the data seems uh, does not seem that does not seem as strong as much as the concept seems good. Yeah, I, I I completely agree, and I think it goes along with a lot of the the sort of recent nutrition data, which are that we had a lot of good concepts and thought we were doing a lot of good things, and then now that we have some fairly robust data studying it, it it finds out that although the concepts seem pretty good, they may not actually play out kind of like they seemed in patients. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's made us rethink, I think, a lot of kind of, you know, oh, you have to get to full feeds right away as soon as you can. And if you can't, you know, add TPN and, you know, be really, really aggressive. And then, you know, when we study something like that, it turns out it doesn't doesn't really seem to have as big or any effect that we think it does. So. What what are your thoughts about TPN? I wonder, especially with some of the recent literature suggesting the equivalence of TPN in enteral nutrition, are are we getting better at using TPN perhaps, or or some of the earlier trials just uh, misdirected? Or no, I think. Uh, yeah, I think I think you're you're right. So you know, my bias has always been that I, I haven't used much TPN. Uh, I've enterally fed patients, and if they weren't able to tolerate full enteral nutrition, I just went with what they could and accepted that, with rare exceptions, obviously. So I use a little, but in general, you know, it's not in my main arsenal. You know, then kind of the Apanic study came out that you know looked at supplemental PN and seemed to show potential 
downside to supplemental PN and that patients who didn't get it actually did better. And I think that made a lot of people think, well, maybe we shouldn't use it at all. Two subsequent studies, Doig has a study, um, Gordon Doig has a study in JAMA that we talk about in the manuscript where he looks at TPN in patients with contraindications to enteral nutrition and you know, depending on how you interpret the results, uh, at worst, there's no difference between the groups. And, you know, he interprets them to say that there's a slight benefit to less time on the ventilator in the TPN group. And, you know, so at least no harm there. And then the recent calorie study, which is published in the New England Journal after our manuscript was submitted, which looked at just TPN versus enteral nutrition in general and essentially found no difference in the groups, which, you know, I interpret as saying, I, I suspect TPN isn't harmful, as even though we have older data that says it might be. And I think you're right. I think that a lot of that may have to do with us getting better TPN and us getting better at central line care and, you know, decreasing infections from central line care. I still have a view of it still requires a central line. It's fairly expensive. And if I'm not sure that it's actually going to improve patient outcomes, I'm still not, you know, jumping to it right away. Yeah, so maybe we could talk about one other aspect um, which I found really interesting as well. And then maybe since you're on the front line, you can tell us what's coming down the pike. But this 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 notion of feeding the, uh, especially at least in our town, the morbidly obese or at least the, the the folks that are obese, and how you figure out what types of calories they might require. And I thought this figure too, in terms of body mass and energy expenditure, was really interesting. And thought maybe you could help uh, help me. Uh, understand it a little bit better even how to approach those patients. Yeah. So, you know, it's sort of an emerging concept in critical care nutrition is that the obese sort of are, may, I should say, do better with some hypocaloric feeding. And that hypocaloric feeding being based off of an ideal body mass and not an actual body mass. The caveat with that is that they still need a fair amount of protein. So they get what is thought to be kind of higher protein, lower calorie type feeding. That benefit probably goes away some point at a BMI in the the mid-30 range. And so, you know, then it adjusts a little bit more if you're morbidly obese. You know, the obesity epidemic in the U.S. is clearly not going away, and we clearly are going to be, you know, caring for more and more obese, morbidly obese, severely, severely obese patients throughout kind of uh, our medical careers. And, you know, I think a lot of this is, again, sort of like the general nutritional data in critical illness a decade ago and the fact that it's based off of some good preclinical data and some great ideas and some good science, but not yet based off of great clinical trials in humans. And I think, you know, that's, you had said, you know, getting to kind of what's coming down the pipe. I think this is one of the areas that we're going to see a lot more research in the next three or four years is, you know, how do the provisions of providing uh, enteral or critical care nutrition in the obese population differ from the non-obese population. And I think we have an idea of what we think is the right way to do it that we kind of outline a little bit in the manuscript and the review, but I don't know that we have great supporting data that says, yeah, we're definitely right with that. What else is, uh, is coming down the pike? Are you, are you involved in any uh, trials currently or uh, are there any, any other trials being uh, put together currently? Yeah, so, you know, I think there are a couple trials that are kind of interesting that are brewing out there and are going to uh, going to be on the radar screen of people in the next six months to a year or two. One of the sort of prevailing thoughts in critical care nutrition kind of 
going along with this talk we just discussed about the obese population is that protein may make the difference and may matter. And so there's a couple trials that are that are just about ready to start looking at just supplementing protein to regular enteral nutrition or parenteral nutrition and trying to improve outcomes, you know, trying to get neutral nitrogen balance or something along those lines. We're still doing a lot of work with sort of micronutrients. So there's some selenium, obviously data that are out there, but additional micronutrients, whether it be zinc, some things like vitamin C are are things that are definitely being studied, whether they're truly nutritional or vitamin, I think you can put them in both. I have some funding to look at some essential amino acids like citrulline, glutamine, and those sorts of things. And I think you're going to see more data about, you know, the right populations for those and, you know, the role of those. And then I think lastly, I think we still have a large population, which kind of, you know, plays to you, which is the surgical critical illness that we still don't have a ton of data about, you know, what we should do with nutrition, with immunonutrition, with micronutrients. And I think there is still a fair amount of work to be done in in that population. And I think you're going to see some data from that population, the surgical populations specifically in the next few years. Yeah, that would be more than welcome. As you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, we could we could actually spend a couple hours <laughs> speaking about all the different controversies in in, uh, right. in nutritional support. I, I don't know. Although I will caution you, if it's anything like the data we currently have, it's just going to continue. exactly, exactly. <laughs> so that that might be a good reason to uh, to say, you know, what this is a wrap because we don't want to cause too much mass confusion. But it right. certainly is. A, it's a really interesting topic. There are so many unknowns, and we certainly look forward to uh, some really well designed trials to try and help answer some of these burning questions and, and how to provide the optimal tr- nutrition support to our patients. Great. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to uh, discuss or add to, to that discussion. No, it's been fun. I appreciate you, uh, you know, publishing this and talking to us about it and kind of you know, getting, uh, getting our thoughts out there. Well, thank you so much. I'm sure our readers will uh, very much enjoy your manuscript. It really is quite well written, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed another edition of the Eye Critical Care Podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information. For the Eye Critical Care Podcast, I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Have you listened to SCCM Pod 231 on Family Presence, Evidence versus Emotion? Or SCCM Pod 232 on Assessing Family Satisfaction? SCCM wants to know how these Project Dispatch-sponsored podcasts changed or influenced your practice. To provide feedback, contact SCCM's Director of Quality, Lori Harmon, at lharmon at sccm.org. Or to learn more about SCCM's Project Dispatch, visit www.sccm.org slash Project Dispatch. Michael S. Weinstein, M.D., F.A.C.S., F.C.C.P., serves as an associate editor for the Eye Critical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is associate professor of surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is director of the Surgical ICU and executive medical co-director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved.
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.